Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of March, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from England. And uh, we're also delighted to be joined by uh, Debbie Evans, UK Column nursing correspondent. Uh, well, we're going to get straight on with uh, some good news. Uh, so let's uh, bring this on screen. Of course, everybody remember the uh, uh, the, the NHS 100K march, uh, which was putting pressure on the government to drop the vaccine mandate for NHS workers. Since Sajid Javid subsequently announced that drop uh, of that mandate uh, in Parliament, pending the outcome of a consultation. Well, that consultation has now uh, got some results. And so the government has said regulations making COVID-19 vaccination a condition of deployment in health and social care will be revoked. On Tuesday, the 15th of March, the Health and Social Care Secretary has confirmed today, that was yesterday, uh, following a public consultation where 90% of the respondents supported the removal of the legal requirement for health and social care staff to be double jabbed. The government is revoking the regulations. In January, the government confirmed the intention to revoke vaccination uh, pending the consultation. Um, and uh, they said that when the original decision was taken to uh, introduce COVID-19 and then they go on to talk a load of nonsense, so I'm not going to repeat it. Um, but uh, that is a very positive uh, development, Brian, and uh, we've got to say very well done to the NHS 100K campaign and everybody else that uh, was involved yeah. in that. Yeah, and what does, it, what does it say, Mike? It says that when people stand up to be counted, they can achieve things. So many times people are saying to the UK, Colin, but what can we do? How do we affect what's happening? Well, this is just a perfect demonstration. It requires enough people to be speaking out instead of uh, just a few people doing the work. Um, in the meantime, uh, the situation in Ukraine continues, and I'm sure Alex will have uh, a lot to say about that in a second. But let's just begin with uh, what the UK government has announced, more sanctions, this time against Belarus. Uh, first tranche of sanctions against Belarus for its role in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Chief of the General Staff plus three Deputy Defence Ministers have been sanctioned, two defence companies sanctioned. Um, and uh, so the sanctions include Chief of the Defence Staff, the first Deputy Minister of Defence, Major General uh, Viktor Gulovich. Gulovich, uh, according to the government, is responsible for directing the actions of Belarusian armed forces, which has supported and enabled the Russian invasion of Ukraine. He's directed joint military exercises with Russia and consented to the deployment of Russian troops along the border of Belarus and Ukraine, which has directly contributed to Russia's ability to attack Ukraine, including from positions in Belarus. Excellent. But then uh, more sanctions, or at least encouragement of sanctions. Here's Rishi Sunak. Uh, we will continue to work in Gusta, sorry, lockstep with our allies to cut Russia off from the global economy uh, and financial system in the name of democracy and freedom. So he was encouraging uh, central bank governors and from the G7 to go faster and further in support of Ukraine and for a coordinated approach to, on sanctions implemented as the UK and its allies reduce their economic dependence on Russia. Uh, so he was speaking at a virtual meeting under the German G7 presidency uh, yesterday and he emphasised the importance of G7 unity as the UK continues to work with its allies to monitor the economic impact uh, of the conflict and stand in solidarity with the Ukrainian people. It's brilliant, Brian, isn't it? Uh, well, it's hypocrisy. But let's remind viewers, of course, that this uh, gentleman is linked into a billionaire 
family. And the moment we're talking about sanctions in, in an economic or financial sense, well, who's calling the shots? The international banking cartel. So I don't believe that Rishi Sunak is making any decisions. I believe that that is going at much higher level from the uh, the high level banks. Yes. So the question is, what implicate? What are the implications of these sanctions uh, on the rest of the world? Well, let's bring uh, Brazil. Uh, this is a statement by the permanent representative. Uh, for Brazil to the United Nations Security Council yesterday. Um, and uh, so this is Costa Filno. And he was basically talking about, uh, reluctantly, Brazil is going to go along with the uh, Security Council resolutions and, and, and agreements on uh, the Ukraine situation. Um, but he was concerned particularly that the, uh, the sanctions enhance the risks of a wider and a direct uh, confrontation with NATO and Russia, but that also that there are problems with of course, whether the impact of the sanctions is going to result in uh, starvation around the world uh, as a result of uh, the uh, reduction in exports of grains in particular from Russia. Um, coming back to the UK government, then they have decided they're going to provide uh, much more support. And this is very uh, similar to what the UK government was doing in Syria over the years. Uh, the UK will provide 220 million pounds of emergency and humanitarian aid uh, a thousand troops have been placed at readiness to help humanitarian response in neighboring countries, including in Poland. Uh, but then uh, we get to the immigration part of it because uh, they are expanding the family visa scheme to cover parents, grandparents, adult children and siblings, in addition to immediate family members of people settled in the UK. But they're also going to create a new sponsorship scheme to organizations and citizens, sorry, so organizations and citizens can sponsor Ukrainians who do not have family ties to come to the UK. And what uh, I'm hearing, by the way, from Poland, Brian, is that if you remember a few months ago, all the furore uh, in the UK media about the, uh, uh, the immigration that was potentially coming into um, Europe via the Polish border from Belarus, uh, and the claims from the UK media that the Belarusian government was using this immigration flow uh, as some kind of political weapon. We saw the Polish government and the Polish military building a, 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 a fence uh, between the Belarus uh, government, uh, Belarus uh, and Polish border and a sort of no man's land developed with uh, refugee camps on it and so on. Well, I'm hearing uh, that many of those refugees are leaving those camps, simply heading south uh, and coming into Poland uh, through the southern border. Um, and so where because the southern border is effectively open at the moment at the moment to allow for Ukrainian uh, uh, influx of Ukrainian refugees. Yeah. Um, so all kinds coming into Europe at this point, despite the fact that uh, you know the best British mainstream press was uh, going nuts over the potential for this um, back in uh, January, early January, I think it was. Yeah, and let's also qualify this because, of course, at the end of the day, all of the migrants are suffering. They're being used. Let's remember the comments from uh, Sir Peter Sutherland, who was the uh, UN ambassador on migration and he boasted in a publicly recorded speech that mass more mass migration was needed in Europe in order to break down the nation states. So people need to remember this underlying agenda that migration is nothing to do with helping people or providing sanctuary, it's to do with breaking down the the nation states themselves. Uh, and then uh, Monday afternoon and yesterday, well, Monday afternoon, I think it was, uh, here's TASS uh, reporting this, Russia-Ukraine negotiations are over, says source. Well, of course, not over forever, but uh, just over for the day. 
So what they were saying was that uh, uh, two delegations, one from Ukraine, one from Russia, uh, held talks uh, in Russian-held uh, territory, as it's being described, uh, near the uh, Belarusian border. Uh, and this was on Monday. Uh, uh, it's Well, how was it being described? As an attempt to end the military action uh, from Russia. So uh, two, the delegations met. They had five hours of discussions. Uh, and then following that, uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, said, I'll be honest, as always, I don't really believe in the outcome of this meeting, but let them try. So they're having a go. They've agreed that they're going to meet again in a couple of days' time. The next meeting will take place in the coming days on the Polish-Belarusian border. Um, so uh, maybe we could bring Alex in at this point and just be interested to get your thoughts on what we've covered so far, Alex. But uh, uh, what are your thoughts particularly on the uh, Russian-Belarusian, or the Russian-Ukrainian uh, uh, negotiations? Well, Mike, with the minimalist position uh, that Putin is taking and the maximalist claims uh, that Zelensky seems to be taking, uh, I don't know whether with these two heads of state uh, having the current delegations under them and giving them orders, uh, much can be achieved, really. And Belarus has uh, really shot to pieces its reputation as an honest broker. I know that will upset some people who believe that Lukashenko is a, is a warrior for truth in COVID times, uh, but he's not an honest broker. And sadly, the Belarusians are torn between him and an obviously CIA-backed coup government, which they rejected last year, or even more MI6-backed, actually. So uh, Belarus is not going to be able to uh, see to this. It may be that an Asian power in time um, can do what used to be a Geneva format, honest broker talks. Um, as regards the, the crisis moving one country westward by, per week, I can endorse that because, of course, you have your sources uh, in Poland. I'm also finding, and I've posted to my Eastern Approaches Telegram channel just now, um, that at the main border between Ukrainian uh, Subcarpathia and the Polish border town of Przemysl, there's a remarkable number uh, of non-European males of uh, military age uh, crossing the border where, in a place where I often have in happier times. And in fact, the, of course, the EU will criticise this as racism and backwardness, but the Polish interior minister has already raised the terrorism alert level along Poland's eastern border, both the Belarusian and the Ukrainian sections of the border, for precisely that reason. Uh, it's very much a question of who will be coming over the border. And now Britain is doing the former Soviet trick of allowing people to come in if a business or citizen sponsors their visa application. People should bear in mind that that puts them on the hook for financially and in criminal law for the conduct of these guests. And if an, an untoward NGO matches up, uh, somebody coming from Ukraine, I will deliberately not say a Ukrainian, but somebody coming from the territory of Ukraine to Britain, then you might not know whom you're getting. Just think back to Syria. What kind of Syrians or people from Syrian territory did, uh, did we end up getting in the West under these fast tracks, uh, so-called uh, refugee claim and asylum claims? Uh, yes, some good points there. Thank you, Alex. Now, uh, in the meantime, um, Boris has been on his travels uh, because while Russia and Ukraine have been negotiating, he has been, well, what do we say, plotting. So here is uh, Boris uh, with the Estonian president. Uh, he was in Tallinn yesterday. Uh, they, of course, condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as is how they put it, uh, and the brutal attacks on innocent civilians. Uh, we'll come on to, to that in a second. Uh, which they agreed had the hallmarks of a dark past, which the European continent thought was forgotten. Um, and then uh, uh, he went on to, uh, to, to Poland uh, and had similar discussions and issued a very similar kind of press release. But let's, uh, let's come back to the issue of uh, the effect of the sanctions on uh, the West. And let's have a look at the, the uh, stocks, for example. So here's uh, bank stocks 
And if you look at the, uh, this is European bank stocks, but HSBC and other British banks have been affected in a very similar way. If you look on the right-hand side there, you'll see that uh, they have been heading south in terms of their value uh, very quickly uh, in the last couple of days. Why is that? Well, the main reason is because the money's being flown into defence stocks instead. So uh, money's flying into defence because as we reported on Monday, uh, Germany uh, decided to, to decide, sorry, Germany decided to spend 2% of its GDP on defence. Uh, and Alex, this is quite an incredible development in a sense because Germany has has fought the, uh, the, the demands by the United States in particular for it to start spending 2% on defence. Suddenly it's spending 2% on defence. Suddenly we've got more momentum back into the European Defence Union initiative again. Uh, and we've got all this money flowing into uh, into defence stocks. Uh, there's going to be some pretty big winners here. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, those winners are the, going to be the, at the front of the queue criticising Putin for what he's done. We've said it in slower time, Mike, to watch Germany hawkishly, particularly how the old money, uh, Mittelstand uh, um, and, and private money uh, factions in Germany forced Germ uh, the, the Berlin government to come out from under NATO's shadow and uh, have a rapprochement with Russia. Well, that is going on now. Um, and it is a seismic shock in German politics that Olaf Scholz addressed the Bundestag at the weekend and said there was going to be a 100 billion euro war chest. Uh, bear in mind that, of course, Germany and France are a single military enterprise since the Treaty of Aachen, alias the Treaty, Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle, whose English translation of the text is, is, is probably, we think, still only available on UKColumn.org from a few years ago, like the sleeping beauty of the Lisbon Treaty, uh, namely uh, military union under PESCO. Likewise, this Franco-German axis is now really roaring into life. Schultz did announce a 2% GDP spend on defence. He announced in so many words that the half-century German policy of Ostpolitik was over. I remember at school uh, interviewing an old rugbyan, Sir Frank Roberts, uh, a foreign office senior from the 70s, who was ambassador to Bonn at the time, and how he, he rather patronizingly laid out to me that Britain had told the Germans in the 70s, well, the thing to do is, is not to worry the Russians too much, uh, stay in, stay on your little corner. You know, Lord Ismay's quote about NATO is here to keep the Germans down, the Americans in and the Russians out. Well, that's now starting to flip. Uh, but the, the dominant model still is uh, a German beast and a Russian beast at each other's throats. That's what's envisaged in the, in the city of London. But yes, this, this is really something because um, people will be aware now that Thomas Röper, who's appeared with Rainer Filmix um, uh, Enterprises as well, uh, has been talking uh, a lot about uh, Russian sources. Well, one of his previous books pointed out that even 1.5% of German GDP on defence was only achievable by ridiculous uh, so-called efficiency savings, leaving the troops unequipped and a massive amount of borrowing. So not least, Germany is indebting itself here. You know, if, if, if the massive tax take for uh, German and EU level for defence goes through, who's to guarantee it really is all going to go on defence? Or is it going to go on globalist projects under the name of defence? Uh, very good yes. questions, yes. Good point. Uh, right, which brings us on to Germany, Alex. And, uh, well, what have we got here from uh, from Germany? Just a 10-minute drive out of Karlsruhe on the French border, where the German Supreme Court is, is this little place of Bietigheim. And there's a catering establishment there called Trauber, the grape, which is announcing here, somebody's mobile screenshot it, but there's many other reports on this, uh, that as of a couple of days ago, in bold type, they're uh, announcing on their website, and I've deliberately blocked out their number to avoid people spamming them. That's not a good idea. They're announcing, uh, we uh, do not desire uh, guests with Russian passports, which probably is a complete virtue 
you signal because if you're not staying overnight but just having a, a meal or a drink, you don't need to show a passport, not even in COVID era, I don't think. And then they, they rather mealy-mouthed add that we're perfectly well aware that, quote, normal, unquote, Russian citizens are not guilty for the criminal behaviour of the Russian government, but it's still time to, for us to perform a gesture. And uh, this is our contribution to making sure our children can live in a peaceful Europe. It's starting to sound a bit 1939 here, you know. Um, this, 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 of course, has got, got them a lot of flack domestically, but Germany is definitely the king of virtue signal right now, as it has been in COVID times. So Opera Wire here is reporting that uh, the delectable soprano Anna Netrebko has been forced out of the Bavarian State Opera, where I believe she's a freelance, but a regular one. Um, but even their, their conductor, Valery Gergiev, whose name is on screen, uh, who's quite Putin aligned, um, has been, uh, he, he's, he's actually full-time director of the Bavarian, uh, conductor of the uh, Bavarian State Opera. Well, it was actually the Munich mayor, because the city owns the Bavarian State Opera, who kicked Gergiev out. But the crazy thing is, Nitrebko has been signaling on Instagram because she's more European style uh, Russian, uh, that she's anti-war and she wants peace, love and friendship. But that hasn't been enough because it seems that in Germany they've gone so far and you can see it as well with that uh, that catering uh, you know, announcement, the modern version of no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. This time it's no Russians. The, 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 the intelligentsia in Germany is now getting to the stage of demanding a positive statement from Russian citizens working in prominent roles in Germany, that they eschew uh, Putin and all his works. And if they won't do that and cut off links, in this case with Nechevko, if they won't cut off links with their colleagues, Gergiev, uh, then they're out on their ear. Uh, this is getting pretty worrying. Uh, I'm getting reports from Aberdeenshire, Donegal, all over the British Isles, and no doubt the continent as well, that school children with just one Russian parent or uh, Russian and Ukrainian workers in the Western countries are already starting to pretend that they are Ukrainians in order to avoid bullying or worse. Uh, yes. Uh, and where does that uh, take us then to, I support the current thing? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So here, um, this is this is, I think, the meme of the week because it's uh, for those who haven't caught up with this. The idea of this grey greyed out character is it, it comes from the world of gaming, the non playing character, and the idea is these people, uh, a section of our population, think and say whatever is planted in their minds, and they they are you know high performing in their jobs maybe, but they don't just just don't realise how much of the uh, hostility has been planted in their minds. So people put their uh, social media badges up. I support whatever it was a few years ago. I stand with the French when they were getting uh, terrorist attacks. Uh, it's just a way of demonstrating that from week to week, people can be induced to support the current thing and, of course, forget the last thing. Uh, well, and it's, it's incredible how they've forgotten, in many cases, the, the last thing. But let's, uh, let's come on to uh, Google and uh, YouTube. Uh, and Google pushed this out uh, yesterday. Uh, due to the ongoing war in Ukraine, we're blocking YouTube channels connected to RT, that's Russia Today, and Sputnik across Europe, effective immediately. Uh, it will take time for our systems to fully ramp up. Our teams continue to monitor uh, the situation around the clock to take swift action. Well, it was pretty swift because yesterday morning, this is what you were saying, if you went to the Russia Today uh, YouTube channel, in the UK at least, uh, not available in your country, if you've got a VPN and you want to go to a non-European country, you can watch this ch this channel uh, perfectly fine. It's pretty similar to the UK column, YouTube. Uh, no, because uh, the, this, the channel is still up. It's just blocked in certain oh, countries. Okay. Right? Ours, ours, ours was taken down completely, right? right. So, 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 not, so, so sanctions against the UK column were harder, were harder than against than, Russia. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, so uh, where does that take us? Well, here's Sky. Uh, and this was just a couple of days ago. So somebody uh, posted in the Sky community forums, why are you still broadcasting Russian RT? 
Uh, and the person uh, responding on behalf of Sky said, well, basically, uh, don't worry, it's uh, broadcast rules. We have to wait and see and so on. Well, today, Sky have announced that uh, Russia Today is being taken off uh, the Sky network completely. And I would imagine that, that it's not going to be too long before it's off Freeview as well. Uh, the British government has announced that it's going to uh, block the satellite signal that transmits RT signal to the UK. Uh, I'm not sure how they're going to do that, but they're going to do that. But in the meantime, Ofcom uh, claims to be an independent organisation, but this is clearly a politically driven, politically motivated uh, hunt is one witch hunt. Yes. Yeah. So Ofcom launches 15 investigations into RT. Um, and they're basically, well, let's have a look and see what Dame Helen Dawes, the wonderful uh, chair of Ofcom, says. Uh, given the scale and gravity of the crisis in Ukraine, audiences expect to be able to trust and rely and duly impartial broadcast news. Try not to be sick in a bucket when you read this, because it is appalling as we go on, you'll see. When reporting on armed conflict, we recognize it can be difficult for broadcasters to verify information and events, but this is it is imperative that they do make that they make every effort to do so. Uh, they must also explain clearly to audiences where there is uncertainty or where events are disputed. Was that done by Channel 4 News when they were promoting terrorists in Syria over the last few years? Of course no. Not. Was it done by the BBC? No. Uh, supporting a fair and free media is central to Ofcom's work. We take this responsibility and our duty to protect audiences and uphold trust in the news. They've got to uphold trust in the news. I'm not aware that that's in Ofcom's charter anywhere. Well, and, and our duty, to we can't protect ourselves. We've, we've got to have a lady, Dame Melanie Dawes, looking at the material and deciding what we can read as if we're three-year-olds. Right, year -olds. indeed. So they're taking that extremely seriously. Uh, however, don't worry, Brian, because freedom <laughs> of expression is a cornerstone of our approach and fundamental to our democracy. I'm not sure whose democracy she's talking about. Uh, given the serious ongoing situation in Ukraine, we will be concluding our investigations into RT as a matter of urgency. So 15, 15 investigations into RT for alleged breach of the broadcast code. Uh, and there is no question that RT, in my mind, there's no question that RT will ever be back in this country again. Uh, but uh, let's just see how the uh, wonderful UK press is reporting this. Putin propaganda channel Russia Today will disappear from British TV screens as government moves to shut down satellite that beams Kremlin lies into UK homes and YouTube blocks it online. This is how the uh, uh, Mail was reporting this. And let's come to the Plymouth Herald because they decided to make it personal. Kiam Man, Kiam being a, a, a district in Plymouth, Kiam Man who went on the front Russian state-controlled news show and they do a whole uh, section, a whole article on Kevin Owen who used to, who was born and bred in Plymouth. Um, so that is uh, that's where we at are at with respect to uh, so-called Russian disinformation. So free speech in UK is over. It, this it, is this is a clear indication that it is over. It will only go downhill from here. That that's absolutely correct. Now Brian said to me earlier, well, where does that leave us as in the UK column? And of course, Ofcom at this point don't regulate us at the UK column, but the online safety bill. Uh, will absolutely bring us under their purview. So uh, you've got to pay attention to what's going on with that piece of legislation. We'll be talking a little bit more about that later on in the programme. Um, but uh, Alex, let's bring you back on because uh, you were speaking to James Dellingpole yesterday. 
Indeed, Mike, and uh, the result is already up on Odyssey, where I've taken the still from of James earnestly asking me a question. But if people look at the URL above his head there, dellingpole.podbean.com, that will be your uh, portal to, I'm no, no doubt he will shortly be posting it to everything else, including Spotify and Podbean itself. He wanted to ask me about Russia and the Ukraine this time. And actually, that works out pretty well as a segue, because Dame Melanie Dawes uh, is a childhood friend of James and his brother, Dick Dellingpole. And in their recent rumin uh, ruminations uh, on uh, the Dellingpult, uh, they were saying that uh, she's, and this, this applies very much to Ofsted, Britain's um, inspector of schools, as much as it, well as, as well as it does to Ofcom. Uh, how, how do they get? Uh, how does the British government make these a kind of arm's length? shock troop um, arrangement. Well, the Delling polls are saying that Melanie is an awfully nice girl, isn't she? But she's terribly woke and really bossy. And uh, that's the kind of personal insight I appreciate from uh, from Dellingpoll because uh, he's grown up among this sort and he knows what's going on. These people don't think of themselves as evil. They've got more a kind of a head girl syndrome. Well, anyway, um, I had a good long chat of an hour and 10 minutes um, uh, with James, uh, which he's put up about Russia and the Ukraine. And let's listen to a just under three minute segment where I'm giving him the historic spiel because he did want to go into depth and get the nuances on Russia and Ukraine. Nazism was funded from the city of London and Wall Street, but Anthony Sutton also wrote books about how this was true of Bolsheviks from the beginning. Now, it's not just him. The Soviet ambassador to London in the crucial 1930s, Ivan Maisky, wrote a hard-to-get book. Uh, at least in German translation, it's called Wer half Hitler? Who helped Hitler? And he gives a fairly comprehensive view there of seeing in the 1930s that certain bloodlines in the city of London and uh, dominating uh, events through, through forums like the Lord Mayor's Banquet that he talks about and the Foreign Office and the think tanks, uh, families like the Somersets and the Astors are dead set on wiping Soviet Union off the map under Lenin. However, they do still want to have a dictatorship there. It's just they would rather have a block that's favourable to them. They don't care, and this will make more sense if people read, listen to my day two film testimony, they don't care whether Germany is at war with Russia most of the time. They don't even care if one of them attacks the Anglo-American bloc, because the thinking is we're the sea power, we can still encircle them both. What they don't want is the development of independent uh, freedom-loving and certainly small states in that part of the world. Now, there's got to be a German-dominated bloc and a Russian-dominated bloc. And that, in a nutshell, is why the Ukrainians suffered, right, horrendously with the Holodomor, as I'm sure you know, because they were told you are going into the Soviet bloc. And Her Majesty's governments uh, at the top level, the bloodline and City of London level, wanted them to be in that bloc. And therefore, their Soviet stooges kept doing them the, uh, the, the, dis, the, the disfavour, killing them softly, of putting bits of other people's territory into their territory. Putin was saying this back in 2015. It wasn't just for the first time last week uh, when he recognized the Donetsk Republic that he said this. He said, uh, Romanian land, Hungarian land, I visited it in the far west of Ukraine, around Ungvar or Ushwarad as it is now. Uh, a lot of Russian land, Crimea and the Donbass, was given to the Ukrainian state, which had never been in the Ukrainian state. And, you know, more generally, I don't want to get too convoluted here, but this is the point that people who are more minded about international law and the West must keep territorial integrity, they've got to bear this in mind there were two or three layers of states within the Soviet Union. There was the Soviet Union, the sovereign, there was the republics, and there were autonomous republics within them. And each layer of those, so in the case of Georgia, that would be Abkhazia, South Ossetia, in the case of, the, of, of uh, Armenia, Azerbaijan conflict, it's Nagorno-Karabakh, in the case of um, uh, Ukraine, you've got certainly the Crimea falls into this category. They have an equal claim, as does the Ukrainian level of statehood, of saying, we're out of here, we don't want to be part of a state called the Ukraine. It's, it's not as simple as saying the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the Ukrainian 
Soviet Socialist Republic anno 1991 has to be maintained. That, that in a nutshell, is, is the Russians' legal contention here. Right. This is, this is I mean, clear as mud to me. I, I mean, I, it's, 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 it's so complicated. It is indeed so complicated, but fair play to uh, Ellingpole for actually trying to understand it and, and his constituency of viewers as well. So I thought that this would give us a springboard uh, just to compress a bit more history and background into here. I'm not going to repeat what I say in the Dellingpole itself. Uh, here is Time magazine from over a quarter of a century ago now, 1995, announcing that the West or NATO or however you want to see it is bringing the Serbs to heel. Uh, and a picture there of uh, a NATO bomb doing its work. The subtext, uh, sub subtitle here is, a massive bombing attack opens the door to peace. Well, that's a nice way, an Orwellian way of putting it. For, zoom forward to 2022, and we have Time magazine uh, proclaiming the return of history. And then we've got a portrait picture of Putin with a Hitler moustache in a tearaway section. Now, this is... <laughs> a bit blatant what's going on here but let's just uh, point people as quickly as we can to the right source which is the best interview well first of all this um i'll put on screen in a moment where this comes from but just to uh, show people how interesting this is as just on the eve of the second world war uh, the next european war will start in the ukraine it proclaims and in the inset in the top right sorry that i haven't blown it up it says that the 300 odd square miles of ukraine include parts of czechoslovakia romania poland and soviet russia how telling and if you look at the green blob that's in ukraine uh, as of just before the war the crimea is not green it's red it's part of soviet russia the Donetsk Republic and the Luhansk Republic, as they now are, are not really all in there. And within the green blob, you've actually got, OK, the page fold obscures it, but you've got two black lines or three because everything uh, under Poland, with that vertical black line delineating it, is actually part of Poland pre-war. And the inset in that bit says five million Ukrainians live in this part of Poland. Czechoslovakia has an eastern end, which is part of the green Ukrainian territory. That's Carpathian Ruthenia. This is Czechoslovak territory before the war. What's now the Republic of Moldova or Moldavia to the old fashioned uh, is still part of Romania because of its ethnic composition. So you can see that there's been several waves of expansion of the Ukraine. And this is before uh, the uh, post-war seizing of the area of Poland around Lviv by Stalin, as agreed by Roosevelt and Churchill, and then the um, 1950s award of the Crimea to the Ukraine. So, so much detail there. And just to give people where that came from, it was Look magazine, an American magazine, from March 1939, the same month that these, uh, the Nazis, having previously taken the Sudetenland in 38, were marching into the whole of the Czech Republic, but not Slovakia. So you can see that the two bogeymen are being well set up here. Well, listen to this in slower time if you can. Uh, the, it's on the Liberty in Our Time channel on YouTube, among other places. It's entitled The Best Enemies Money Can Buy, an interview with Anthony C. Sutton, who got kicked out of the Hoover Institution at Stanford for uh, presenting too many uh, pieces of hard evidence, bank receipts mainly, to show that Wall Street had fun. Uh, sorry, well, yes, Wall Street in, in effect, but the Anglo-American model effectively had funded the rise and maintenance of both of the dictatorships of the 20th century that we all love to hate, the Nazis and the Soviets. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples from my notes uh, before we hurry on, the very year that the Bolsheviks came to power, in fact, just a month or so after their revolution, December 1917, the largest shareholder in Chase Bank 
in Manhattan, uh, very important with the Rockefellers later on in, in globalism. That's Colonel William Boyce Thompson, with a P, I hasten to add, not a direct namesake, uh, crashed the Bolsheviks a million dollars in what was still then called Petrograd. I mean, in today's money, that is you know, gazillions. The design of the first Goss plan under Lenin, the first five-year plan for state enterprises, was by Albert Kahn, K-H-N, the world's leading industrial architect from the USA. Uh, Ford, which is often accused of being pro-Nazi in that era, knew of the military potential involved when it set up for the Soviets in the early pre-war period the Gorky plant, the GAZ, Gorkovsky Avtomobilny Zavod. They didn't care that they were giving the Soviets uh, a, a military leg up. W. Averell Harriman, uh, well known for his role in military union around the time of the Marshall Plan after the Second World War, was in the 30s uh, the main uh, concession holder for the Georgian manganese mine, Chiatur Manganu. Armand Hammer, uh, who had Occidental Petroleum concessions in the Soviet Union, was the son of the Secretary of the Communist Party of the USA in 1919. He's one of those who put money into the Soviet Union. Post-war period, Major Jordan's diaries, well known to some and easily obtainable online. Immediately after the war, an American patriotic officer says, why are the Brits telling us Americans to send heavy water aluminium tubes and graphite to the Soviet nuclear program, which wasn't even disclosed till 49, and he was told to shut, to shut up about it. 1970s, only the Americans had multiple independent re-entry vehicle nuclear warheads on their ballistic missiles, and yet Henry Kissinger, uh, the incoming state, uh, Secretary of State under Nixon at the time, told a Vermont company that had the world uh, lead, in the, old, the world monopoly in, in producing the sufficient grade of all bearings. That company is Bryant, chucking grinder. Kissinger made sure that they sent that technology to the Soviets. And even before that, uh, the MiG uh, planes that shot the Americans out of the skies in Korea and Vietnam were stolen American designs under the nose of Manhattan. Uh, the Soviet merchant navy used largely Western diesel engines. The Kamaz plant which covered 36 square miles uh, of the uh, Soviet Union. A huge plant was supposedly a fiat plant, so supposedly an Italian investment in the USSR, but it was American technology that was then sending vehicles off to fight the Americans in the Vietnam War. And finally, from my notes here, Julius Epstein, an American, sorry, an Austrian Jewish uh, historian, talks about Operation Kielhall, which only became public much later. The treatment of Soviet POWs, including Ukrainians and Cossacks, being forced back to uh, Stalin, where they'd never been his citizens in many cases. Count Tolstoy has just written another book about this. This too, uh, as uh, Sutton points out in that interview, was with the connivance of the city of London and Manhattan. So in all of this, Putin bad, Putin knew Hitler, we know what Hitler was like stuff. Uh, Putin, uh, Stalin and Hitler were maintained and dispatched by Western capital. There is no two ways about it from beginning to end. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'll just say that you are never, never, ever going to hear this sort of analysis and depth of analysis on the BBC, for example, because they do not want the population of the UK to hear the truth, the historical facts about the, this manoeuvring on a world stage. So thank you for that, Alex. Now, Alex, uh, I, I just want to end this segment, uh, if we could, just by saying something about what's actually going on in Ukraine at the moment, because on Monday, obviously, we were talking about uh, the, the, the reporting and the fact that, that there, there's very little evidence of significant military action in Ukraine in the mainstream media reporting. If you compare what's going on at the moment uh, to what happened, for example, in the two Gulf Wars, uh, where we were being bombarded with images and reports from the ground uh, on a per minute basis. Um, now, obviously, there, there, there are images appearing of, of blown up buildings and so on. There are images appearing of convoys being blown up. 
uh, and there are um, some uh, em emotive images of, of people with, uh, that are bloodied up and, and, and uh, being uh, cared for and so on. But I have to say that a lot of those remind me of, of a lot of what we saw from, from Syria and so on. But I just wanted to get your thoughts on what you think the, the, the level of, of, uh, of operation is in, the, in Ukraine at the moment and what, just how careful is Putin being with, with his targeting of, of, uh, of targets? Well, you'll forgive me for not being definitive here because it is very fast moving and there is so much propaganda and inadvertent propaganda. You know, if we if we take the modern terminology, there's a lot of misinformation, non-deliberate disinformation by people who in good faith think that a, a clip um, with some sourcing is what it says it is. And then it turns out to be a couple of years old or uh, representing forces of the other side in the conflict. However, I think it is crystallizing already from the good sources I have in the region that there is not much Russian troop presence on the ground. We keep hearing about a now stalled, possibly because of fuel and food shortages, but now stalled 40 mile long vehicle convoy heading for Kiev. I just do not know uh, what the long and the short of that is. We, we hear that Mariupol, the easternmost of uh, Ukraine's major port cities on the Black Sea coast, is now starting to succumb uh, and that it was going, it was due to have been stormed by sea by the Russian naval infantry, ditto Odessa at the western end of those that chain of ports, and that Russian sailors and marines have mutinied. This is also coming out from pro-Russian sources of good, good intel, intel as well. It wouldn't surprise me if Russia has logistically overstretched itself at the moment, and also if it's keeping some of its stuff in reserve. But I think the long and the short of it is, Mike, at the moment, there is not that much of a ground war. Otherwise, we would be seeing pretty extensive footage of it. What we're seeing is a lot of aerial warfare. I think you're going to show some in a moment with utterly devastating results, bombardments, including some pretty near where my friends live dotted around the Ukraine, some of whom I haven't heard from. So extremely nail biting. But there is not that much. Well, there's certainly no guerrilla fighting yet, except, of course, on the ground where what some people call the Russian fifth column in major Ukrainian cities is already going around savagely dealing with anyone who breaks the curfew imposed by the Zelensky government uh, or just doing petty thieving because some of these people, as Zelensky has tweeted himself, are prisoners who've been let out of jail uh, if they're prepared to have a rifle put in their hand. Um, so th there is a lot of that. I think that the overall strategy is not just anti-Putinist saying this, is that Russia wishes to use arms length Ukrainian allies to round up the perpetrators, what it would call the neo-Nazis, uh, in order to bring them to Russian stroke international justice later, independent of The Hague. But all of that implies it's all being done by proxy at the moment. I do not see a huge amount of Russian troop incursion into the country. Uh, to the extent that it is happening, it's happening from the north, from Belarus, rather than from the east, as far as I can see. And uh, Alex, I'd just like to um, add to that. It seems to me that if we in the West don't fully understand uh, what is happening in the Ukraine as a result of the action, military action that the Russians have taken, their plan is absolutely working because the last thing they would want is that the West can analyse every step they're going to make. So those initial um, maps that were put out by the Ministry of Defence in the UK were, of course, complete nonsense because that is not what's going on at the moment. Um, and But in the meantime, Alex, we have all the continuing headlines about you know Putin needs to be uh, prosecuted, Putin's a war criminal and all this kind of thing. I just wanted to put this in a little bit of context because, well, first of all, I'd, I want to say once again, you know, for all the people that accuse uh, the UK column of, of presenting a Putin narrative here, this isn't about uh, supporting a foreign head of state in any way. This is about a criticism of our own 
media and our own government and the fact that the, our media are not asking the relevant questions. Um, and so the question is, if we do a little bit of comparison here, who is the biggest war criminal on this planet? Is it Russia and what it's doing in Ukraine? Or is it the UK, the United States, the EU, NATO, and what they have done over the last 40 to 60 years? And, and let's just put put this uh, piece of video on screen here from... Uh, uh, because this this uh, is you know this is the so-called highway of death from uh, the first Gulf War, um, and uh, what you're seeing on screen there is is a convoy of uh, Iraqi military leaving uh, yeah. leaving uh, Kuwait going into Iraq. Uh, they were also carrying civilians as well with them, uh, people that uh, the Kuwaitis were were getting. At. This was devastating. Absolutely devastating. It was and slaughter is what it was. It Mike. was, and nobody was ever held to account for this. Now, uh, let's see, who was it? Ramsey Clark, it was said that this was uh, against the Third Geneva Convention, Common Article 3, which outlaws the killing of soldiers who are out of combat. These soldiers were out of combat. They were running away. Um, and, of course, there still is no accurate figure for the death toll with this. And the other thing I'm just going to mention on this is this was the event that caused Ian Crane to uh, leave uh, his job as an oil man and uh, get involved in the campaigning work that he did ever since, because he was one of the first, if not the first, civilians uh, in this on this road after this happened. And the things that he told me about it, I'm not going to repeat uh, at the moment. It was absolutely disgusting. But Alex, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this, because th there is a pretty warped view in this country of what, or at least being presented by the media in this country, of what Putin is doing. Uh, and no criticism of what we have done uh, in the past. The United States has been chucking munitions on Afghanistan for a generation, for 21 years. Uh, even if we just stay with the direct wars, there's Iraq, everyone knows about it, though they tend to forget at moments like this. The proxy wars, Yemen, Syria, how many millions have died, uh, diseases, uh, died from diseases and starvation and munitions? In those wars. Nobody has been told in the West to care about it. Therefore, they're not putting their social media badges up saying they stand with any of those Muslim nations. Yeah, this is pretty obvious. And, and just to augment what you said, I mean, Ian has given talks to rooms full of people, including me and you, where he said, for example, he just walked over a sand dune on that Iraq Kuwait border and found the atta Apache attack helicopters strafing lines of retreating Iraqi troops mixed in with civilians from both, both countries. Uh, and blowing up the oil wells. And he was later uh, squared up to by a, a massive US, I think he said it was an army ranger uh, officer uh, or possibly some Delta Force guy saying, never repeat this if you know what's good for you. And we have to stare this in the face. Uh, the Five Eyes countries, uh, special forces do often, do routinely include men who are quite happy to go along with such orders to do false flag attacks. Uh, whether it's Eastern Europe or the Middle East, it's happened time and again. And we've got to reckon with that as one of the, the regular tools that the City of London and Manhattan use in their arsenal. Yes. OK. And just uh, then finally for me on this, uh, I just thought it would be uh, amusing to, to mention how ridiculous this whole thing is, get, is getting, because here is uh, the Peterborough Telegraph. And the headline is that uh, Peter, Peter, sorry, Peterborough-based Compare the Market Reviews use of meerkats adverts during Ukrainian crisis. So for anybody outside the UK, this is a sort of a comparison, insurance comparison website uh, that in its advertising campaigns for many, many years has used uh, sort of uh, toy 
uh, meerkats uh, with a Russian accent. And because they have a Russian accent, uh, they are now going to be uh, taken off their advertising campaign, or at least they're reviewing it. This is how ridiculous the whole well, thing I'm is sure, getting. I'm sure the next step is to cull the meerkats. Indeed. Okay. Well, maybe that brings us back onto the uh, madness of the BBC. And uh, of course, if Russia Today has uh, been taken down, uh, the BBC is clearly working hand in glove with the government because here's the headline, Ukraine watching the war on Russian TV, a whole different story. And um, the nub of this is very simple. We can't have, we can't allow in the UK any other narrative than the BBC working hand in glove with the government. So this is worse than the censorship uh, and the propaganda in the Soviet Union, because of course the UK is trying to have the world believe that we are a democracy, but there's no free speech. But what most people won't pick up on this page is this tiny little bit here, which says that this story has come not from the BBC, but from BBC monitoring. Uh, we've got two names there above it. And as always, UK column went to have a look at the people. Well, Simona Kralova, um, the duty editor at BBC, we didn't seem to find much information on her. Uh, this was the other gentleman mentioned uh, at, the at the top of that page, Sandro Vetsko, journalist, media and country specialist at BBC Monitoring. Uh, encourage people to go to his page so that you can see his uh, history for himself. Uh, but it's uh, a fascinating career. And Alex, I'm just going to ask you just to comment uh, very, very briefly on this. But education, the National Research Nuclear University, Moscow Engineering Physics Institute. So uh, he's um, he seems to have made a career now of reporting presumably not very pro-Russian things. But let me just add this before I come over to you, because when you get to the bottom of his page, his interests are apparently very heavy on Bill Gates. Uh, just tell us in a few seconds, what sort of man has uh, BBC monitoring picked up here? Well, I see he was at the University of Michigan back in the mid-90s. He's a couple of years older than me, perhaps. I can't quite work out whether he's a Balkan or a Ukrainian national from that. Uh, but the profile is well known to me. It's a whole generation about my age that was swept up in the ashes of the uh, the fall of communism, really, in all of those countries, and that was given an internationalist mindset in their crucial years. And so were the Western politicians through the precursor to the Global Leaders Programme, which was running as early as 1993 from Davos. You know, it's 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 a well-trodden route. Uh, these people have their minds mixed with. They can never again really associate with their, the national aims and national sentiment of their home countries, even if they very conveniently retain the, the, the fluency in their native language and the ability to, to seem as though they're reporting sentiment on the ground from those countries to the West. What they're actually doing is bringing, via BBC monitoring and media action, bringing BBC Think to their countries. Yeah, so what we're talking about, Alex, is these people have been turned in order to deliver the BBC, BBC monitoring the UK government's view. So encourage people to go and have a look at BBC monitoring. Uh, this is them talking, um, uh, this was a couple of years ago, I think that they were talking about um, 80 years in the job. Uh, so you can read up some of that here. Uh, apparently it's all essential media insight. You have to look at it. Well, I went and had a look at who was running it and we've got a lady called Liz Howell, director of BBC Monitoring. Please have a look at her background because what is her experience? It's the weather. 
And uh, she's now hopped across to the fact that she is apparently telling us uh, what is happening inside a war in Ukraine. Mm. This is simply not credible. There we are, um, April uh, 2011 to present, 11 years, head of BBC Weather. Suddenly she switched across to BBC Monitoring. Uh, I've got to say again, this is simply not credible. But look at her interest. Uh, the influencer, Richard Branson. Mm -hmm. Now we get a different feel for what this lady might be about. Um, but if we go and have a look at uh, the BBC blog, we can see more of them boasting about the 80-year uh, celebration. And Liz Howell from her weather experience is telling us all about it. Uh, it says that sometimes, story, uh, sometimes the stories countries tell through their media or the stories they don't are news in themselves. The BBC, there's a specialist unit within the World Service who spend their days listening to, watching and scrolling through the world's media, looking for such a story, watching international events as they play out on the public stage. The only weakness, Alex, you've just given us here is that many of these people have been turned and they have a very biased view. And here it is in the last 80 years, monitoring have moved from headquarters in um, Eversham to Caversham and now to London with 12 international bureaus, including Kiev. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty obvious what's going on here and why the British public should not trust the BBC. Uh, look at who they're in bed with, Black Sky, Liverpool John Moores University, Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and Oxford Analytica. Well, they've got a good reputation, Mike, which uh, we can comment on in just a second. Um, but uh, let's have a look at Black Sky. Don't get a good feeling from this website at all, but here are the happy people with uh, one of the gentlemen sticking out his tongue, if you look carefully. Uh, they're a leading provider of real-time geospatial intelligence. So now we've got commercial interests feeding into BBC monitoring, or is BBC monitoring feeding into the commercial interests in order to sell a story to the public? It's difficult to tell. And um, this was... Um, uh, wrong one, Brian, because it's Oxford Analytica. Okay, my, my mistake on this one. So just, just bring us up to just give us a little bit on what we were looking at with Cambridge Analytica, Analytica at the time. Well, uh, well, there was just the accusation that they that they were involved in the in the Brexit uh, uh, referendum, but but also the the Russian connections in there as well. So there was an attempt to suggest that Russia was uh, was linked to the Brexit referendum and so on. Yeah. So interference, we can say, in the democratic process was never really put to bed, and certainly the BBC never got in there with a major documentary. But why would we expect them to do that? Well, if we go back to the other supporters here, Liverpool John Moores University, and if you have a look at uh, part of what they're doing, they are using the uh, BBC monitoring database as a guide for students going through. And uh, top right, I found it interesting that it's saying accurate and nuanced translations of international media. Uh, Alex, correct me if I'm wrong here, but if you put a nuance on information, what you're actually doing is putting a very, it may be very slight, but you're putting a spin on that information. Uh, correct. He who pays the piper calls the tune. And 20 years ago, when I got into that game, Caversham, as it then was, BBC monitoring, was people sitting in Berkshire, uh, flatly, dryly translating news to a very high standard. And by the end of my decade there, the noughties, 
It was much more, what does the FCO and MOD want out of this? What line should we give them? And then the FCO and the MOD at least threatened to drop some of their funding. And BBC Monitoring thought, ah, right, from now on, we're going to have people embedded in country, at which the uh, Whitehall Department said, hang on, they might get targeted by locals, uh, which was planted the first seed in my mind, ah, the locals would be onto them if they were subverting their own societies rather than reporting the news in English. So that... that, uh, train has gone on and now it's much more nuanced than uh, accuracy i would say and of yeah. course they're all people from those countries there's very few brits left because of the closure of university language departments who can even supply the the, the agencies the intelligence services directly with sufficient linguists let alone to work in the likes of bbc for the bulk work you have to use foreigners now which of course brings its own dangers with it okay thank you alex well just to continue through this segment to remind people of the sorts of thing we're dealing with uh, BBC media action we were warning about and we've been warning recently uh, because of their activities inside Ukraine. But we were warning some time ago because the headline was not good. BBC charity sacked six over sexual misconduct. Uh, so this was the report on it. Can we trust these organisations to be independent and upstanding? And of course, they're tied in with the government. So here's DFID. Uh, saying that DFID does not have a record of any sexual misconduct allegations relating to BBC media action uh, on our counter-fraud and whistleblowing system. Well, why would they? Because they're working hand in glove. And of course, media action said it was independent of the BBC, except when you started to uh, look at office space, the BBC group donation rep represents a gift in kind of office facilities. So this isn't an independent charity. This is an arm of the BBC. And if we go and have a look at the financial statements, we find that at the time, at least the people uh, there inside media, BBC Media Action were also benefiting from the BBC's pension scheme. So how can we trust these people at all? Uh, we just encourage uh, people to go and look at the data and the information themselves and start to ask the questions. The point of the image on screen is that you have people working both in the BBC and BBC Media Action, so they can't possibly be independent. And this brings us up to date because here is the BBC. Oh my goodness, they are very upset because there's an MI5 agent that allegedly has been abusing women partners, uh, partners of the individual. And the BBC is apparently desperate uh, to get this individual name. So I'm saying uh, this is serious, but it is very amusing in some ways that the BBC is getting very righteous over the MI5 covering up the abuse of women. Um, but of course, the BBC has failed to warn that the state has been changing laws which allow state assets like the police, military and others to freely break the law. And Mike, you've particularly picked up on this with, uh, uh, with talk about the Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act. Well, yes, but uh, of course, uh, you presume that this MI5, uh, MI5 officer wasn't abusing women uh, on behalf of the state, you would hope. But of course, How we do don't we know. know. How do we, we don't know? know? Because we have seen in the past, this is the point, uh, that uh, uh, police have been put into campaign groups, for example. They've been getting involved in sexual relationships with campaigners. Um, and uh, uh, that has resulted in huge scandal and huge upset amongst the, the people that they've interacted with. 
borderline criminal, but of course nowadays it's no longer criminal. So uh, you don't know whether this person was committing these acts as a result of the, uh, being part of the work that they were doing. Yeah. But we'll leave people to think about that. Uh, now, at this point, I'd like to bring in Debbie Evans. Debbie, of course, has been following through on matters to do with the NHS and health. And uh, Debbie, your research has led you in the interesting direction of Ukraine and so-called biolabs. Now, there's still many questions about this subject, but clearly this is another area that the BBC doesn't want to talk about. Let me just bring up a couple of images and then we can... Uh, we can ask you for some comment. Uh, but this was uh, Diliana um, yeah. with a, a headline, Documents Expose U.S. Biological Experiments on Allied Soldiers in Ukraine and Georgia. Can, can we just put that up, Stephanie, please? Yeah. Sorry, thank you. And, uh, of course, this young uh, lady has done some really tremendous research to do with laboratories dealing in dangerous chemicals. And here she is starting to comment on the line of biological um, labs. And uh, also, um, Debbie, you picked up on the fact that if you followed the chain through, you could see references in very serious locations, the US Embassy in Ukraine here talking about a biological threat reduction program that was underway. It was also mentioning um, cooperation over COVID-19 response. And if you dug deeper, uh, you came into contracts that had been issued. Uh, certainly these documents seem genuine, uh, but the question is what is really going on inside Ukraine and why would there be these bio, bio labs? What's your impression? Well, good afternoon, everyone. Um, well, this all started from a tweet uh, by a username of clandestine who suddenly triggered a whole debate on biolabs within Ukraine owned by um, America. And within literally hours, the whole thread had gone, the, the, whole, the whole, everything had disappeared, but it was replaced by loads of fact checkers. They all came in swarms saying this was not true, which leads everyone to be even more suspicious. So I looked at it a little bit more deeply and it would appear and, and i hasten to add you know it would appear um that the pentagon has been conducting biological experiments um with potentially fatal outcome uh, outcomes on ukrainian soldiers um and if if by chance one of these soldiers dies it's called a voluntary death but because of uh, bilateral agreements uh, no one's to blame. So it doesn't get talked about. Um, it, no one's to blame, a bit like the COVID vaccine, the indemnity that we're finding. Um, but there seems to be a couple of projects, one's called UP8, UP8. Um, and it was very interesting to hear what Alex was saying with regards to Ukraine. And I'm sure he'll correct me if I mispronounce this, but Mariupol, seems to be one of the areas of interest with regards to these biolabs and some bioweapons that allegedly um, the US were, were making. Um, and the locations also coincide with Odessa and Kiev. So I would just urge your, your readers and your listeners to, to dig a bit deeper into it and to have a look at it because certainly there are a lot of stories going around on social media at the moment and it's noticeable that the US Embassy has removed all documents now 
but there is a website gab um where you can see the well they say you can see the original documents they've taken screenshots of them so it's an interesting one i think to watch bearing in mind we've talked about bio laboratories in the past okay debbie thank you very much for that um, okay, if you uh, like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to our new community website, community.ukcolumn.org, and there are options for, us, for you to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. Also share our material on the various platforms as you find it. Uh, I added another one here, Mike, okay. as well, because I decided that we should put up the button for people. If you want to know how to join us and subscribe, because we can't do what we're doing without your financial support. Uh, that big red, red button, join today, takes you to the gateway the to, make, page, yes. to make everything possible. So we just wanted to highlight it because we know that there's a few people, uh, some of them are new to things online, so we want to help assist everybody, but that's the red button you need to press. Brilliant, and uh, and also uh, change in the location of the shop. So if, if you would like to support us that way, uh, shop.ukcolumn.org is the new location for that as well. And just to end uh, the sort of advertising section, I just wanted to mention this because uh, 8th of March is the deadline for the cons consultation on the new Human Rights Act. This is Human Rights Act Reform, a Modern Bill of Rights. We've been reporting on this since 2010 when the uh, coalition government at that time uh, launched their program to bring in a new modern Bill of Rights, a new Bill of Rights. Uh, it's taken this long to do, but nonetheless, uh, this, of course, uh, is of major concern for people because it potentially removes the right to bodily autonomy uh, and uh, would open the gates, floodgates for uh, uh, proper vaccine mandates in the future. So if you want to... Uh, uh, add your thoughts to this consultation. It ends on the 8th of March, just a few days to do that. Okay, excellent. And I, I will just add that we've had a lot of people saying to us, can we give a report on David Noakes? Uh, I am informed that David Noakes is now free to come back to the UK. I'm waiting for a one-to-one -one update from him. Uh, but I am going to say this is, is only been possible through the amazing support for all the people that donated to his uh, legal help appeal but we will give you more on it but that is good news now we're going to bring debbie back in because um, debbie has been looking at matters to do with behavioral insights and uh, a couple of days ago she came across this interview which was channel 4 news uh, we're interviewing the guru himself professor david halpin now remember this is the lead this man is the powerhouse behind the government's behavioral insights team which worked alongside the cabinet said in 2010 we can change the way the public think in uk and they will not know their thoughts have been changed or they won't know at least how we did it uh, this man is now creating an empire globally um, but the interview was very revealing and I've got to thank uh, Debbie because she spent some time going through the interview. Um, and what we're putting up now is timestamps. So this is four minutes 36, for example. And uh, we're just going to put up on screen uh, some headlines so that you can go, you can, you can freeze the uh, image on your screen. And then you can go into the interview and actually hear what's being said. We are going to listen to a little clip, but let's look at some of the key points. Um, he was busy saying that there are three, four groups of vaccine hesitancy and tenders 
worriers, anti-vaxxers uh, and the disengaged. Uh, seven minutes, he was saying that intenders need things made easy for them. Convenient vaccination centre, a home visit. Uh, worriers, well, they're suffering from entrenched behaviour, which has got to be dealt with. Hesitancy, um, apparently a regression model drives down hesitancy. So these are sort of bullet points that Debbie's kindly made to help our audience. 8.35 with the intenders, tell them they're top of the queue. The British like to be top. Uh, nine Minute 9.08, the worried may have grounds for worry but we mustn't call them a moron. So that's very interesting because they may have grounds for worry, but what is David Halpin doing using applied behavioral psychology to ram home the vaccines no matter what the damage? And bypass the worry, you mean, no, In, no don't answer the concerns. Don't answer the concerns, yeah. let's just use the psychology. Uh, 10 minutes, some medics may say they don't want a vaccine as they've had it. So let's check and do a test to see. Now, that's interesting because that's rather been stamped on by the news today yeah. uh, in the NHS. And look at this, uh, this one. This is unbelievably cynical, heart-wrenching, using people who hadn't had the vaccine and end up on a ventilator saying, if only they'd had the vax. How callous can you get and to, we, we to saw, do this to people? We saw so many of the, those headlines over the last uh, six months or a year. Yes, indeed. And, and it's incredible. But he, he says, uh, with a condescending uh, <laughs> word, UK public have done well. Debbie, I'm going to do a little bit more, but just to bring you in. What did you think when you heard this man talking about this sort of thing, using heart-wrenching stories to skew people's behaviour? Well, I mean, it's it's shocking, isn't it? And I mean, let me add, this is a very recent David Halpern interview that he did with Channel 4. It's audio only, but it was only about five or six days ago. And uh, the way that he speaks, well, I'll let you play a little bit, but I was absolutely shocked, rocked to the core that someone could just very casually, because the interview is very casual. You know, it's like two two friends sitting at a bar having a drink. And sometimes, you know, I think David Halpern might have forgotten that other people will listen in. That's the impression I got. I was shocked. Right, Debbie, thank you for that. Well, let's just continue through. Here's minute 12, 30 seconds. Demographics show minority groups and young men have got a high rate of hesitancy. Young men who never wash their hands. What an insulting uh, comment that is, but look at 13. There is a low trust in government, but happily, that's my word, happily it turns out the most powerful variable is trust in fellow citizens. So if we can skew the minds of enough people, the herd instinct comes in. He's asked about anti-vax incentives, uh, gets a bit upset, says that pizza doesn't work, um, so you can make up your own mind. But look at the bottom, People are influenced by people. This is how dirty this government agenda is. If we can make enough people scared to follow the policy, the other members of the public will follow. Anti-vaxxers must not be called weird. So they're recognizing that there is an intelligence amongst the anti-vaxxers and they've got to be careful what they do. But oh dear, minute 21, uh, Omicron science has changed. Uh, feel sorry for the ministers because that, that science didn't work in their favour. 
Um, and then he talks about a hundredfold increase in vaccine protection. And this is Debbie's words. I'm not sure what evidence Halpin is using here. And I can understand why she said that. 2216 in interviewer, no push to get the vaccine. Halpin, the situation has changed, but in many countries, uh, still, if you want to travel, you'll need a jab. Um, and that will help the disengaged. Now, we've got a bit of the audio here, which we're going to uh, play out uh, because he starts to talk about different types of countries. So listen very, very carefully to what this, in my, my words, this very dangerous individual is talking about. Well, you mentioned some reasons. So it's likely for a, quite a while, I suspect, right? And others can judge as well or better than me that if you want to travel around the world, there are many places that are going to require you to have a jab. So that will remain some kind of soft pressure and that's particularly relevant to so-called disengaged, which would persist. I mean, some people will likely persist with some behaviours because they feel better and it makes them feel safe. By the way, there's some behaviours which people will persist with, which would be really good, wouldn't it? Um, and that's a question which is not being asked very much. Which of the behavioural shifts do we want to hold on to? I mean, a good simple one would be, if you're sick, should you stay at home? Right. For a lot of people, the norm was definitely the other way around. You know, you should get in there and don't be lazy. Whereas there's a strong case, I think we now conclude, seriously, Kieran, if you're not feeling well, just stay at home. Would you do us all a favour? And that would be a good social norm to change. Or would it change? You know, we've, for you know, the last decade, we've been kind of been a curiosity when someone comes from Asia and they're wearing a mask. But actually, we now might think about that really differently, which is that, of course, the reason you're wearing the mask is because maybe you're at the tail end of a cold or something. And again, you're protecting other people. The last thing to bear in mind is when you've gone through this, and remember other countries had gone through it with SARS, and one of the key differences, right, is the countries that responded fast had sort of had a version of this already. They had a, a kind of policy or social vaccination because they had an exposure to it before and they were ready to move much faster. And so what if that will remain? We hope we won't have another pandemic, but to what extent would be reasonable to think we could respond much, much faster. Like we know the gist of what we would have to do. You'd be able to switch it on much faster. And that's actually quite a powerful, enduring thing to have with respect to how do you handle these crises. There's a, another variable between countries, sometimes called tight-loose. So Japan would be a classic example of a so-called tight country. If someone says we should do this thing, wear masks, everybody will then wear masks, and you apply pressure on each other. Whereas North America would be like, you know, land of the free, I should definitely do something different from everyone else, so-called loose country. And we're a bit more towards the loose end of it. And you might say, well, how do countries end up being tight or loose? One of the key things that drives it is exposure to natural disasters. So the countries which have a generally more tight, they've been exposed to volcanoes, tsunamis, etc. And you can sort of see why, because you better learn. Like when someone says there's a wave coming in, run for the hill. Interesting question as to whether the experience we've gone through will make us a slightly tighter society, probably, in terms of quite subtle things about how we react and that would probably alter in some interesting you know modest ways if it all happens again let's hope it doesn't so debbie all very soft and subtle with that annoying new music over the background tight and loose countries we're too loose we're too free we're too democratic we need tightening up what what do you actually think about the comments that he made there Oh, I think they're very, very revealing. And he's obviously saying 
that um, countries that are, are used to natural disasters obviously follow their their protocols and they're used to doing things but in in many countries the uk and the usa included we're not used to these situations so basically it's been a very good test the last two years in order and he says at the end of the interview it's not what we found out over the last two years it's what we haven't found out and what they're finding out is that the uk i'm presuming needs tightening up and i can see from the organizations and the amount of work and research that's going on that indeed is the agenda for the future you know behavioral sciences are here to stay awesome. and the uk will become much tighter more in line with japan and other countries that are deemed to be tighter but how scary is that well it's it's very scary um, particularly as we see the application of the applied behavioral psychology on a global scale and um, when I heard that audio clip into my mind came the fact that Mike had picked up back in 2018 when the media were trying to ramp up fear in UK about natural events. And helping in that audio is busy saying, well, if you got fearful with a tsunami or perhaps there's been an earthquake, uh, you're actually going to feel fearful and then you're going to be malleable for what the government wants you to do. So let's just bring up this little uh, clip which we had on the UK column in uh, 2018 and Mike you'd pulled this up from the Daily Mirror where they were clearly making a story out of nothing but what was the aim of this to make people fearful it's it's pretty obvious isn't it yes okay right worldwide and how do we do it the power of TV Debbie you picked up on this document the power of TV nudging viewers to decarbonize their lifestyles and here's the same David Halpin working uh, with the chief executive from, the, from Sky. So although they're limiting their conversation here to the fact it's about decarbonizing, I think we can be pretty sure that they're using the applied psychology in a whole range of areas, but particularly for the vaccine agenda. Um, any comments? Well, I would recommend everyone go and have a look at that document. And there's also other documents with regards to mainstream media and the BIT team um, involving the BBC and other outlets. So, you know, again, the behavioural, none of what we are seeing today would be able to take place without behavioural science. And this is what we're going to see more of in the, in, in, in the future. And you're absolutely right. It's how do we ramp up the level of fear? You know, we've all been, well, a lot of people have been very frightened during the COVID first act, as I would say, and now the fear is being ramped up with war. So it's fear, 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 very scary times. And we just end on this one because you picked up on the Global Association of Applied Behavioural Scientists. This is a very scary group of people. And you look at the uh, partners and you start to say, you know, I'm looking at mind and equity in the middle of the screen. What is this about? This is big. This is about persuasion science, Brian. This is all about um, how we comply, surve surveillance of people, how we behave, predicting how we behave. And, you know, this, this organisation, the Global Associ Association of Applied Behavioural Scientists, our very own Paul Dolan from the Cabinet Office is in there. And when you look at the leadership, you've got BlackRock, you've got the World Bank, um, you've got uh, the London School of Economics, you've got Google, 
I mean, all the big players are in this. So we mustn't ignore the behavioural science agenda because it's it's driving everything that we're seeing, in my opinion. And and we've got a circular argument here because, of course, the war in Ukraine is frightening people. It's it's running their objective, but also the media hype over the war in Ukraine is hiding what is actually going on here. So people have really got to stay on top of this this particular agenda. Thank you. Thank you for that, Debbie. Um, OK, let's uh, let's bring the online safety bill on screen uh, for a second, uh, because there's been some developments. Now, if you remember uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were reporting this, uh, Debbie, uh, Nadine Dorries, who's the Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, was saying that we're stopping kids from being exposed to online porn uh, and that they were going to do this through age verification, uh, potentially giving websites credit card details. Uh, and uh, Ofcom finds for fear to comply. And I said, no, this is not about uh, credit card details. It's beyond that. It's all about digital ID. So, of course, people aren't going to, weren't going to be willing to or interested in giving necessarily their credit card details to porn sites. Uh, but uh, the, uh, nonetheless, there would be pressure to identify them. Uh, and digital ID was going to be at the center of this. So, of course, on Monday's program, we highlighted the fact that the World Health Organization has just given a lot of money to Deutsche Telekom to develop a, a global digital ID system for uh, vaccine tracking. But let's just see what uh, the, the latest announcement for the departure uh, Depart Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport is with respect to this. Uh, this was yesterday. When it comes to verifying identities, some platforms may choose to provide users with an option to verify their profile picture to ensure it's a true likeness, uh, or they could use two-factor authentication where a platform sends a prompt to a user's mobile number for them to verify. Uh, alternatively, verification could include using uh, people using a government-issued ID, such as a passport, to create or update an account. And this, just to make the point here, this is not just about porn sites anymore. Not only are they now proposing passports, but this is for all social media platforms. This is what they're bringing into the, the online safety bill. All social media platforms, if you want to open an account, a Google account, if you want to open a YouTube account, if you want to open a, a, a Twitter account, whatever it happens to be. So Nadine Dorries says the vast majority of social networks used in the UK do not require people to share any personal details about themselves. Uh, they, are liable, they are able to identify themselves by a nickname, alias, or other term not linked to a legal identity, and that has to change. So, of course, what is this about driving? Because again, people aren't going to be willing to just hand over their passport details to a social media company or their driving license or whatever. This is about digital identity. We've been comment commenting on this for, for a number of months now. Uh, and the idea of a digital wallet, which everybody has on their mobile phone. And just remember, the NHS app is not just for, for, uh, it's not just for COVID, it is for life. Uh, and uh, or it's for life, it's not just for COVID to, to use. So we call these uh, pieces of personal information held in your wallet attributes. Uh, and of course, this might include your legal name, which is I think you'll find is what Nadine Doris has just been talking about. Uh, this is where they're going with it. And there's a whole raft of companies just waiting in the wings uh, to, uh, to get involved in it. So Alex, uh, if we could just uh, end on this, I'm just interested in your thoughts on this because uh, this biosecurity state is not going anywhere. It's only part of this overall uh, security state which is being built at the moment. 
Yeah, I'm actually addressing you, Mike, from Nadine Doris's constituency. I don't know whether she's met this constituent of hers who's behind me here, the Raven of Doom. But uh, now the the point here is she's talking about attributes. Yeah, the um, an attribute is something which is given to you. Civil law has a very strong emphasis on your name, your ability to work, your ability to reside where you wish is given to you by central and local government. We've never had that under common law. And now, because the global law requires it, she is the placewoman in Britain to tell us that from now on, a legal name will be given to us. I know jolly well that this is the case because my mother is a retired registrar of births, marriages and deaths, in fact, a superintendent registrar who ran a register office. And she pointed out to me from a young age that Britain is one of the few countries, all the Anglo-Saxon countries are, some of the few in the world, where your name is yours. If you change it, you don't need the state to give you permission unless you intend to use titles fraudulently. This is now being changed. Yes. And and uh, yeah, okay. So so we have reported that as part of the online safety bill, if if everybody is not yet engaged in providing some kind of opposition to that bill, it's time to do so. And um, let's let's be clear about it. What we're saying is that if people don't understand this and challenge it, this will be the bill by which the UK column is attacked and censored. But as Mike has just said, anybody who's got a, any other social media platform. So we shut down Russia today. This is the end of democracy now in the UK and of free speech. And that bill is going to come directly for the UK column. So we're saying to our viewers, if you value what we're doing, support us and give us the means to uh, stand up against what is certainly going to come. Alex, just want to end on one further one because I think it's so important. You've got an Evening Standard article here. No further action after COVID-19 vaccine allegations. So the Metropolitan Police, the police for Greater London, minus the City of London, of course, because they're independent, um, is now saying that it's closing the file on this uh, investigation with the long number ending in slash 21 that everyone got very excited about. And uh, we can see here that actually a deputy assistant commissioner of the Met, so about two ranks from the top, Jane Connors, Connors, is making nakedly political comments about the closing of the file. She says, the vaccines have been approved by all the relevant national and international regulatory bodies. Whose perspective is she assuming here? Uh, is she standing on her oath to be a constable, uh, to uh, uphold people's rights or not? She says they underwent multiple trials, really? And they were subject to stringent approval processes, really? They are used in more than 100 countries. Oh, well, that, that must mean, uh, prima facie, that they're not... Uh, they're not bad. We have found no evidence, she said, on behalf of the politicised Met, uh, which has now lost its um, its boss, of course, uh, to support any claims that information about adverse health implications, what a wonderful British uh, euphemism, adverse health implications, is being suppressed or withheld. The usual Met or, or Western police trick generally, don't investigate and ye shall not find. Um, but we're now being told that West Yorkshire police may still be interested uh, in pursuing this a little further. Uh, but it's interesting that London's paper, The Evening Standard, was given first dibs on this and then it went out to other papers. So uh, obviously the Met has been leaned on. Other forces may still pick up the battle. Uh, but the usual caveats apply that uh, people should not go and do anything violent or aggressive or intimidatory in any premises on the basis that some police investigation is ongoing. They should retain their lawfulness in whatever they do.
Yes. Alex, thank you for that. How can the how can the UK columns show that that statement by the police is completely false? Well, we're going to go back just back very briefly to Debbie Evans, because Debbie, you sent uh, June Rain a personal email, which we can bring up on screen. And you say this. I note that after only one death from doxycycline, you and CHM recommend a thorough investigation. This drug has been around since 1960s and has a good track record for safety. I'm concerned you may wish to withdraw this antibiotic based on one case whilst ignoring the thousands of severe adverse reactions and deaths associated with the COVID-19 vaccine. What assurance can you give us? You received a reply. We've reviewed your inquiry and this has been passed on to our vigilance risk management of medicines colleague for further input. Debbie, this is the MHRA now sidestepping the fact that it has done no quantitative risk assessment, no safety uh, investigation into the safety of vaccines. No, absolutely. And, you know, I've had two emails in response to that email, um, two, and they've been ramped up uh, a level every time. But my my argument is, is that I'm writing direct to June Rain and I'm, I'm asking her just a very simple question, really simple. Where's the investigation for the serious adverse reactions? That's all I want to know. Um, well, actually, I would like to know what that investigation involves and how, how what procedures they use. But the fact that June Rain can't answer me and has had to sidestep this and stand away from it, especially bearing in mind what we've been talking about with regards to antimicrobial resistance and the likelihood that antibiotics are not going to be available in the near future. Um, this is very, very suspicious, I think. I mean, why couldn't she just answer the question? It's a very simple question, don't you think? <laughs> it would be if, if the MHRA and June Rain were telling the truth, but it would appear that either they're badly informed, they don't know what the situation is, or they're not telling the public the truth. But we'll leave our audience to think about that uh, email because I think it's, it's very damning evidence against the MHRA. Indeed. Well... On that note, we're out of time. We're going to thank uh, Alex Thompson and Debbie Evans for joining us. Thank you to our audience, particularly the overseas viewers and particularly those of you that are supporting us. We can only do what we do with your financial help. We're going to end with a rather lovely video clip, which many people sent to us saying, isn't this what the world should be about? So we'll just end by playing out this clip. Thank you all for joining us. Black and blue